I'll say, bless the Lord. If you'll say, oh, my soul, bless the Lord. Bless his holy name. Uh, good evening, Kairos. I'm Chris. I'm the pastor here. Um, thanks to Kobe for reading our text. Uh, <clears throat> there's a knot in my stomach, and I don't know why. Um, so just go with me. This was not part of, this is not my notes. So, Jack, when you came out and said, just release the heaviness, there's a heaviness in this room that's compressing me right now, and I don't know exactly why. I'm going to stop asking people to pray for me before I preach because this is embarrassing. But um, let's just do this. Um, I could be wrong. It could be the ground turkey I ate for lunch today, or it could be the Holy Spirit. So I'm just going to give it a shot. So we're going to practice something that's called the prayer of relinquishment. It's something that helps me sometimes when there's heavy stuff going on. Um, somebody taught me this. It was a pattern uh, someone gave me. You take your fist and you hold it out, and whatever is heavy in your life, you release it to the Lord and say, I can carry this no longer. I can bear this weight no longer. Um, so if that's you, if you want to do that, just put your fist out like this and just begin to release. You can name it in your mind, the cares, the concerns, the burden, the thing that seems beyond all hope, the sickness, the relationship that's ruptured. I don't know what it is right now, but it's in this room. So if you just take your fist, and some of you, <laughs> there's a, a, a Jewish exercise called Toshlik that helps celebrate the, the coming of the year. And another friend of mine showed me this as a pattern. And part of the uh, way that you do it is you take a heavy object or a stone and you cast it into a moving body of water. And that's supposed to represent you releasing your burdens and the things that were heavy from this year. And then you turn around to embrace the goodness that God will have for you in the new year. And my buddy Dave tells me the story about walking down to the beach with his extended family to do it. And they're naming their burdens and throwing them in. And his wife's grandparents are there. And they're probably in their 80s or 90s, and they had had a, a particularly difficult year um, with tragedy in their family and difficult things happening. And um, the wife, with tears in her eyes, said to the husband, I don't even have enough strength to throw it. Would you throw it for me? And so sometimes we don't even have enough strength to pick it up to release it. And so if that's, that's you right now, just ask for God to give you strength to release whatever that weight is, that anxiety, that, that, that crushing feeling that you can feel in your gut and you're not sure how it's going to work out. I just encourage you to release it to the Lord. And then the other part of the prayer of relinquishment is the prayer of receiving. When you put your other hand out and you just go, Lord, I receive all the goodness that you have for me. I receive all the strength that you have for me. My own power, my own wisdom, my own work, my own efforts are simply not enough. I would like to receive from you your grace and your glory.
So if that's you, um, just put your hands in a posture of receiving and I'll speak a scripture over you for those of you who are bringing, who need help with heavy stuff in your life. I pray that out of God's glorious riches, that he would strengthen you with power through the Holy Spirit so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all God's saints to grasp how deep and how wide, how long and how high is the love of Christ and to know that this love surpasses knowledge. Now to him who's able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than we can possibly hope, think, dream, or imagine. To him be all honor in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout every generation. Amen and amen. Sorry, no way around that. Here's an awkward transition. All right, what do we have time left to talk about? Is there anything else we need to talk about that's not on my playlist? Oh, mercy. Act like you've been here before, buddy. Okay. Nope, nope, nope. All right, let's loosen it back up a little bit. Here, I got an idea. Uh, here's a hypothetical for you. If I was to split everyone in... Nope. Nor's not letting me do that either. This is awful. Don't ever show my preaching professor this videotape, please, never. Here's the part of the text Jacoby read to me that's disturbing, that's bothering me tonight, that I wasn't going to plan on preaching on. Paul says, For I've told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows that they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They're headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things, and they think only about this life here on earth. I think this is, has two words for us in here tonight. One, if that's you, you're ruled by your appetites and desires and you brag about shameful things, and you are an enemy of the cross by the way that you're conducting yourself, pray for tears. Pray for the same tears that fell down Paul's face when he sees the way that people live like that. You're enslaved to your desires, your appetites for certain things have gotten out of control, and if that's you, just pray for tears. Pray that I don't, I don't want to want that anymore. I know it's destructive. I know it's out of balance. But Jesus, if you're real and resurrected, kill some things off of me and resurrect who you imagined me to be. Yeah. Second thing I would say, for those of you who are what you would consider in a good spot with Jesus right now in life, pray for tears for other people that you see living like this. Not finger wagging, not self-righteous condemnation, not I'm better than them. But honestly, when you see your friends and family members living like this, is your first response tears? Is your first response to pray for them? Or is your first response you're getting what you deserved? So I wonder what it would look like if we became the kind of people of God that live like that. And then Paul balances that out with, but we are citizens of heaven 
We're where the Lord Jesus Christ lives and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our savior. By the way, if you're having a hard time following Jesus, maybe pray for some more eagerness for Jesus to return. We're acting like citizens of earth, like this place is our home and we've forgotten that Jesus is gonna return again. I have a phrase that I like to say, it's in the end of Revelation, it's come Lord Jesus, come. And it's a reminder that when I'm faced with tragedy or triumph or things that remind me of the brokenness of this world, I'm eagerly waiting for Jesus to come back and set all things right and make all things new. When can we be men and women who live as though we know our Savior's return and we're eagerly awaiting him and we know that we are to be active agents of redemption and be honest, we can't wait for him to get here to make us new, Paul talks about being resurrected like Jesus' body with the same power that put everything under his control. I wonder if what a lot of us need is not another religious service that excites our emotions, but a genuine desire to eagerly see the return of Christ. Here's what's cool too about that. We're gonna get a body like his. So by the way, in new heaven and new earth, you will have appetites. Jesus in his resurrected body ate fish with Peter, so that's cool. There's food in heaven. Just a little caveat. This is why I stick to the notes. But Anything else you want to say, Lord, that we hadn't talked about beforehand? I mean, if we could do this ahead of time next time, I'd appreciate it. All right. Hmm, that's interesting. All right, here's, let's just get right into this because this is, this is the most awesome, worst sermon I'm ever gonna preach, so get used to it. Hey, Paul just said this, and this, right before he went through all that, which Jacoby just read, I, I wanna save that one verse that sets that whole thing up. He says, pattern your life after mine. Learn from those who follow our example. Look who's back, little legalistic Paul, the little old Pharisee bobblehead. We thought he had gotten it all out of his system when he talked about his religious resume, but it, when you're reading Paul sometimes, he can have some arrogant statements. You're like, oh, buddy, Paul, are you serious? He just said to his entire congregation, what, they're sitting at Lydia's house, who knows who all's in there, uh, you, two girls whose name I can't pronounce, they're feuding with one another. Um, there's an unprecedented social religious gathering of individuals that the first century had never seen. There's men and women together and it's okay. There's Jews and Greeks, there's Romans and barbarians, there's people, slaves and free, all in the same house, worshiping the same God and all of them are one in Christ Jesus. There's black and brown and tan, not sure if any whites were in there at all, but I mean, it is this melting pot and they're trying to figure out what in the world, how do we interlock our lives with one another? How are we going to do this thing called Christianity when there's literally a countercultural society being formed when each of us are built in the image of God and we are to love, respect, and submit to one another? And Paul says, I'll tell you how to do it. Pattern your life after mine. And if you don't get a chance to get to me, just follow those who follow our example. Sounds really, really arrogant, doesn't it? <clears throat> I think what we hear is arrogance. 
the Philippian church would have heard his affection. Here's what Fred Craddock says. He says, this was a pedagogical principle. You're welcome, $10 word. Everybody, you're welcome. Teachers, we know what this word means? Yes, okay. It just means your philosophical approach to teaching. Pedagogical, you're welcome. Try to use it in a sentence in the next 24 hours. This pedagogical principle, pattern your life after mine, learn from those who follow my example, our example, was held in high regard and widely practiced. Philosophers, moralists, academics, as well as religious leaders all espouse this principle and practice, to which I would add, even Jesus did. Follow me. That's uh, Matthew 4, 19, loosely translated, come live my life. Follow my example and become who I am. John 13, five, I've given you an example that you should also do as I've done for you. Paul picks up on it in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. 1 Corinthians 4.16. I urge you, brothers and sisters, be imitators of me. I got a question for you. When's the last time you said to someone, hey, come, follow me. Imitate me. You're welcome. Let's go. Does that really still work? Like are Bible truths still true today? Or is that one of the ones that got lost in translation? <laughs> That's what we have like pastors like you for. Just point the way and tell us what to do, but we're not following anybody anywhere. We're Americans, we're individualists. Pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. Craddock goes on to write this. Being a living example is a special kind of relationship that's rare today. Uh-huh. And it places a burden on those who choose to lead and teach. So much so that even in Paul's lifetime, he was concerned that there would be a missional drift within the church when he writes to the Corinthians, you have 10,000 teachers, but very few fathers. And I became a father to you through the good news of Jesus Christ. What is he saying? He says he's got plenty of people who are gonna give you an explanation of Christ, but very few people who are gonna give you a demonstration of his life. Yeah. I learned this when I... Uh, came to this church, um, this, is a, this, is, this church right here, it's big. I don't know if you guys know that, it's still overwhelming to me sometimes and I've worked here for three years. And so my family came here on a Sunday morning. No one likes mega churches except pastors, okay? They just like a lot of people. It makes them feel really, really good about themselves. For those of us attending, you're like, oh my gosh, that parking lot's bigger than the mall. And you walk in and you're like having a panic attack. Where do I go? Oh my gosh, there's coffee. I've, I don't even know where I'm going anymore. So I come in and I've been in thousands of churches throughout my life, but I got four kids I'm trying to wrangle. They're going crazy, they're going nuts. Uh, my wife is usually calm, cooled and collected. I don't handle more than two details at a time very well. We go out to the children's section. I'm like, hey, we've got four kids we love to get rid of. And uh, they said, have you been here before? No, we're totally new. And I expected them as I'm looking, I see this whole row of iPads and it's blatantly obvious. This is where you enter your information. This is where you get this really safe sticker that hopefully matches your kids so he doesn't get abducted because that's where people come to church to abduct people. <laughs> that's an inappropriate joke. I don't know if that's true. If that happened to you as a kid, I apologize. Um, but they, the person behind the counter literally walks out and goes, I'm so glad it's your first time, come with me. 
walks me over, and instead of making me feel silly that it's totally obvious, stands with me, shows me exactly what to do, enters in the information for all four of my kids, prints them out, walks me to their rooms. Even though like there's numbers and directions, my brain's not processing this. I, I, I lost it at finding a parking place. And then I get on staff and in meetings and realize that this is a principle a lot of times in guest services and hospitality. You don't point the way, you lead the way. Leonard Ravenhill, he says it this way, a true shepherd leads the way, he does not merely point the way. And I don't know about you men and women, if the church is gonna survive in the next generation, we need less fingers and more feet to follow. We need less people wagging their fingers, giving explanations of Jesus, and we need more people inviting us into their lives and giving us a demonstration of Jesus. But I know what you're thinking. That's great, but that's not for me because I'm scared and I'm not a perfect person. Why do I know this? I still have the same fears. And I'm quote unquote a professional like this. You know, right? Hey, maybe someday, but I don't know enough now. I don't do enough. How could I ever lead someone else? I'm gonna give you the statement that changed my appreciation and my approach to discipleship and inviting people to follow me. That'll change my life forever, and I'm gonna give it to you. It's simply this. You may not be a perfect example, but you can be a living example. I get it. You may not be a perfect example, but you can be a living example. I was in a church, and I was paid as a finger pointer. I could teach people. I can, other than tonight, normally I can put words together halfway decently. And I can hide behind sermons and soliloquies, and I can paint this picture of a perfect pastor to you. And it's kind of an unspoken agreement we have, isn't it? I'm really, really spiritual, and you guys learn from me, but we never really walk together hand in hand. We talk a lot about the Bible, but we never really live life together so we see where all the cracks and flaws are. And I just became convicted that this was something that the Lord was calling me to do and I got really scared. Like, I invite people into my life. I'm in trouble, man. I still got some bad habits. They're gonna see the good and the bad. They're gonna see the righteousness and the sin. They're gonna see the kindness and the temper. And so I did what any good pastor did. I called my counselor. I called Becky Whitson right up. She was one who walked me through the darkest night of my soul, some of my most ingrained sin patterns and most shameful chapters of my life and led it to the healing touch of Jesus Christ and helped me replace those with new patterns of thinking, living, and feeling. Unbelievable. And I call her back and I said, Becky, I'm just trying to take this discipleship thing seriously. I'm trying to figure out how I invite some people into my life where we start rubbing elbows. I said, but Becky, you know me, I'm not perfect. Like I, uh, I'm doing incredibly much better, but there are still times when I slip up and I mess up. And if these people see this, not only is me as their image as a pastor gonna be destroyed, like I could mess them up or what they see, they could use against me to hurt me. And she said, I, I hear you, Chris, which is what I think counselors are, are paid to say. <laughs> she said, let me ask you a question. The men and women who influenced you most in your life, were they perfect people? No. 
Those men and women who invited you in and you saw their imperfections up close, did it make you love them less or love them more? Did it make you respect them less or respect them more? More. Why? Because for the first time in my life, I saw someone take their issues to Jesus and knew it didn't discount them from his love. I saw someone model repentance. And I saw someone who found strength in their weakness. She said, Chris, maybe it's time for you to do the same. You don't have to be a perfect example. You just need to be a living one. Amen? Let's take 120 seconds. One of the things that we like to do is just listen to the voice of God. Make some space for that. Just get some holy silence and reflection and just ask the Lord, what had my name on it tonight? The God of the universe who orders planets and axes and rotations and the exact distance from the sun to sustain life here on earth brought you here tonight. What did he want to communicate to you? What is he saying that if you just took a moment to stop and listen, that you would hear? So for those of you who already have something that's jumping out, I'd encourage you to write it down, capture it. These are spiritual gifts and spiritual weapons that the Lord is using and giving you in the journey that you're on. For those of you who are still kind of searching, I'll give you a couple prompting questions. What's keeping you from finding someone you need to pattern your life after? Is it because you've been looking for a perfect example? Is it because you tried before and got burned? Or is it honestly because that's the last thing on your priority list? You got too much other stuff to do. question I have is what keeps you from being a living example for someone else make no mistake regardless of who you are people are watching you and your example is influencing them the question is which way and do you want to intentionally step into that calling that Christ has called every Christian to I got a sneaking suspicion. A lot of you got some great patterns and habits and tools that you've picked up that other people need to see and hear. I also bet if you got together with a group of people, they might have some that you need to hear. What would it take for us to rise up again 
be a kind of place that produced 10,000 fathers and mothers. People who didn't just point the way, but led the way. Where we had more feet to follow and less fingers to point. Come, Lord Jesus, come.